Today, I am preaching on Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and the title is Final Instructions, Unity. And so as we finish out the book of Philippians, we're bringing it uh, to a conclusion over the next few weeks. Uh, Paul is giving his final instructions to the church. And I was supposed to preach on Philippians chapter 4 uh, from the beginning to verse 9, but I got through my notes and I realized it was six pages long. And I thought, man, I do not want to preach through six pages on Memorial Day weekend. And I don't think anybody wants to sit through a sermon that that's long on Memorial Day weekend. So I decided uh, just to be in verses 2 and 3 today. Um and so if you haven't gotten, you can look at the outline for today's uh, service. You can see the scriptures by texting 97,000 and the word outline, or you can click the link that was dropped in the chat and will be dropped in the chat. So Philippians chapter four, verses two and three reads this. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. I, I tried pronouncing that name, but I got it wrong and I practiced it a lot but it's okay, uh, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here, as I said, we're coming to the conclusion of the letter of Philippians, and Paul is speaking to two of the leading women in the church community uh, because they have had some type of disagreement that ha would, if it continued to grow, was going to cause deep division in the church and have potential to really divide the church and hinder the work of the gospel that Paul had planted there and that the church was growing and, and so fruitful. And as Paul consistently says how much he loves them, how they're his crown, that they are his beloved, that he is excited about them. He's constantly giving thanksgiving for them, but there's this matter in the church that was separating the church, right? The, the idea of unity since chapter one, Paul has been talking about to the Philippian church, and we kind of get an understanding of why he was hitting that so hard because of this division that was happening between these two leaders in the church. In Philippians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? That was kind of this introduction of unity being one of the main pushes of, of this book. And then in Philippians 2, verse 2, he says it again, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind, right? Paul, understanding the importance of unity, calls out these two women who it seems like they were feuding and were bringing division to the church uh, before it got too far to actually divide the church. He is saying, come together, have unity. And, and constantly in this letter, he keeps on calling to the idea that we must have unity as a church. And the reason why Paul uh, does this is because he understands the importance of unity. Uh, I want us to listen to what Jesus says. His last prayer before he goes to the cross, we have in John 17. Jesus talks about unity in his prayer. And he and how he talks about it, we realize the importance of unity in the church and why we're going to spend today's topic talking about unity and, and how that works in the church. So if we read John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus says this as he is praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved me. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that our sign, a sign to the unbelievers that Jesus is real, is the unification, the unity of the church, right? The sign that Jesus really came, that he did what he did, is the unity of the church. This is a sign to the unbeliever that Jesus actually is who he is, that he is the son of the father, that he came, he died, he rose again. And it also reveals the closeness of the church through the Trinity. So if we look at the Trinity and we see how the Father and Jesus are one, people should be able to look at the church and realize the understanding of the Trinity, the closeness, that we are to be so close in the church. We are to be in such deep unity with one another. We are to be so unified with one another that our unity is actually looked at as a representation of the Trinity. That as we say, Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus didn't do anything he didn't see the Father doing, that Jesus did everything that he was commanded, that him and, and the Father walk, walking in lock and step. Jesus says, this is how the church should be, that they should be so closely unified that it should be a representation of the relationship of the Trinity between Jesus and the Father. So our unity is a sign to the unbeliever that Jesus is real. It helps the gospel go out. And unity should look like what the Trinity looks like, that we are all in one accord of one mind, same love, save everything, that we walk together the same way and the same path. So Paul, essentially beginning this uh, passage, he puts these two women on blast, and I love it. Uh, the reason why he put these two women on blast is because he knew what was at stake. He knew what was going to happen. If there was a division in the church, if the church started, the foundation started cracking, it meant that the gospel would not be able to go forth, that people would look inside the church and that they would see division. They would see nothing that was different from the world. They would see scheming. They would see politics. They would see red tape. They would see all the same things. And it would not be a representation of, of God. And they would not believe in Jesus because of the divisions that they saw. But we know that Paul's aim was not for these two women to leave the church, uh, but it, or was it his aim to hurt these women, but it was his aim for them to reconcile. It was his aim for them to come together. He says that, that he is entreating them so that they can be reasonable, come together. And so because of that, we understand that Paul's aim is for them to stay inside the church. Um, and he knew, Paul knew that if he called out these women, that it wouldn't mean that they would leave the church, but it would mean this. It would mean repenting and reconciliation. So this is a fun exercise that I thought that we can ask ourselves this. If you got publicly called out for something you needed to repent of, what would be your response? If you got publicly called out of something you needed to repent of, what would be your response? 
when we break out in the uh, in our house churches later, uh, that could be a good, fun question that we ask each other. If we were called out in front of other people, what would be our response? I remember uh, when I was younger and I was in Bible school, um, I I was in a workshop and my instructor called me out on something that I was doing uh, during a preaching workshop. And I was so upset at this guy uh, that he called me out in front of everybody. So after I was doing a presentation, uh, he basically told me why my presentation was bad. I sat down in my chair. The next person was going up. And before that next person could give their presentation, I lashed out at the pastor. I screamed at him. I told him why he was wrong. And I called him mean. And I remember uh, one feeling like a fool when I was done, uh, but then realizing, two, I was going to get in even more trouble for what I did. But three, just like this this being called out in front of other people just upended like this deep-seated insecurity. And I had to defend myself. I had to defend my pride and who I was. And and so it's it's always a a fun exercise because I think at that point, there were still so many mature, uh, maturity issues that God was working out in my life. And I, I think one thing that we can do in our life is, is kind of realize that our level of maturity, I think a lot of times can be measured by how well we take to loving rebuke, right? If, if we look at what I did at that moment where I was rebuked for something I was doing wrong, it was public, uh, but this person was not trying to be malicious. He was not trying to be mean. He was not. He was trying to help me grow, and that was the point of my class and my presentation was to help me grow. Uh, and when I took that, the immaturity in me lashed out on him. Uh, you know, later we reconciled and we talked it out and all was good, but there was, there was immaturity in me. And, and when there's immaturity in us, it comes out and it shows itself in different ugly ways. And the, the reality is some of us will never grow uh, because we will never let someone tell us what we did wrong. We will never allow people to speak into our life. We will never allow people to correct us, to rebuke us, uh, to tell us what we need to change, to call us out as Paul is doing to these two leaders right now. Right? As a leader, I will tell you this. When I have to check someone on their sin or on their attitude, I intentionally measure their response. And I can tell you leaders do this all the time, whether it's a leader, uh, a manager at your work, uh, a boss, uh, whoever it is, I intentionally measure their response to see where their maturity is, right? If they are defensive, if, if if you become defensive, if you become dismissive or prideful, I know there's a lot of work to be done in the area of maturity in that person's life. I know that there's still a lot of growing to do. And the reason is this, is because that means that there is worldly wisdom that is lodged in your heart that is saying this, how I need to respond is I need to defend myself. I need to defend my honor or, oh, this person is wrong. I could never be wrong. I, I, I am right. I, 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 I know what you're saying, but I have no blind spots. I know everything about myself. I'm the, I'm the most self-aware person there is in the world. So I don't care what you're saying. It's wrong. Right. Or there's just the prideful reaction of, no, I'm, I'm going to be arrogant in this. I don't care what you have to say. I'm smarter. I'm better. I'm more knowledgeable than you. And whatever you have to say, it does not matter to me because I'm going to keep on living the life that I want to live. Right. Worldly wisdom will tell us that if we get called out, it's disrespectful. And in, when we are disrespected, there is a reason, a call for us to answer that disrespect with 
other disrespect or defensiveness or pride, but godly wisdom will welcome people who care enough about us to confront us. I can tell you the people that I have acknowledged that have loved me the most in my life have been the people who came to me to confront me about their sin. You know, it's, I, I think of it like this way. It's, you know when someone's your friend, when they don't allow that like speck of food to be on your lip in the conversation, right? I, I can tell how much I can trust you that if I, if I walked away and I look in the mirror and I see like that poppy seed in between my teeth or that piece of broccoli or spinach, or I see some food on my beard or my mouth and you didn't tell me about it and I just had a full conversation and other people are seeing me, I'm gonna be mad at you. I'm just letting you know, if you did that to me, I was mad at you probably and I had to forgive you. We're all good now, I, I forgave you, but if you did that, why? But I, I, because you let me go around, right? With, the, it's, with this obvious deformity, this thing that was wrong in me. But the people who love me are the ones like, yo, Justin, you got something in between your teeth. You got to check that out. You know, or, or Justin, you got a little something there. You got to fix that, right? When, when I, you got to help a brother out. When I'm doing something, you got to tell me about it. And I see the same way that people will confront me in my sin, right? Sin is not a lot of times when we are the way we are, a lot of people can see it, right? And it's, we most times are never told about the way we are because A, people are, are scared of our response because we've been immature in the past and we've responded in, in sinful and negative ways or B, they, that people don't just care enough in order to go through that conflict with us and sit down and tell us, hey, there's, there's something wrong. But I can tell you right now that people see what is wrong in our lives. And it's the people that love us enough to tell us what is the obvious thing that everybody is seeing that we need to work on. Those are the people that truly love and care for us, right? But worldly wisdom will keep us away from this because we will see this as a sign of disrespect. We will see this as a, a sign of, of, of kind of like, yo, you don't know me. What are you, what are you talking about? But godly wisdom will welcome this. We'll welcome this because it will show like, man, you love me enough to help me walk out my relationship with God, even through hard times, even through conflict. Because the, the truth is this, that once you are a part of true community, real community, family, there will be conflict, right? I, I read a study once that when people get together, uh, there is right away uh, what they call uh, false community. And false community is this. It's when you meet somebody and you're hanging out, might be the first time, and they say something crazy to you. Let's say they, they, they say a political view that you just, you know, just an hour ago you were talking to your friends on social media about how dumb people are that have this political view, right? And so then you go meet this person and you're in a group and then they say this really dumb political view that you think is just absolutely crazy. And what do you do? You smile. Like, oh, but in your head, you think this person's crazy. I'm never going to talk to them again. We will never be friends, right? If you are not lying, you know that you have done this before with people. Uh, and so this, this is a false sense of community because when you get a group of people together, uh, studies have shown that everybody is agreeable, that you can say something that someone completely disagrees with, but they will most likely smile and nod when you say it because they don't want to introduce tension. 
And when we get together as a people and all we do is have this false sense of community, it's just this smile and nodding. That is not depth of community. That is not depth of friendship. But how to get to true community, uh, the study said, was the next step you had to enter into was chaos. And when you enter into chaos, that is when the next time you get together and somebody shares this crazy political view that you think is so dumb that you need to tell them something about it. And so you tell them and you say, well, I just think that's the dumbest thing that I've heard. And what happens at that point is the eruption of chaos where now the false sense of community, the false sense of agreement is shattered and the truth comes out and the chaos is formed. And in order to get to true community, you first have to enter into chaos where you see who I truly am and I see who you truly are. And through that, after chaos and only after chaos, can we come to a true sense of love and appreciation for each other because that is what true love, true family is like. That even God says that when God sees our sin, he sees the worst parts of us and still loves us. I want to see the the most you know, the, the biggest political view of yours that I disagree with. I want to see those weird habits that I never realized you have. This is why when people get married, they have insane amount of conflict because it's like, I didn't know you picked your toes like that, you know, on the couch while watching TV. I don't want you to do that. What are you doing? You're supposed to do that with a nail clipper in the bathroom, right? These are, these are like normal marital conflicts that you start to see each other. And it's like, I, I, I like what? Well, you start living with a person and all of their weird habits now get exposed. Chaos ensues, but out of that chaos comes true community. And so for us to live in true depth of community in unity with one another, we have to embrace conflict. That is the only way that we can actually come to being a family like scripture calls us to be. This is a fact of life. When we, if you've gone through membership, then you've heard me talk about this a lot. If you are thinking, we're, we're thinking about membership, side note, and what that's going to look like right now. But if you do go through membership, then when we talk about community, we talk about this a lot. Jesus knew that there had to be conflict in order to, that there was going to be conflict in the church and with his disciples and with believers. And so he outlines this beautiful way of going through conflict in Matthew chapter 18. And you can read along again on the outline, or you can just... Uh, read along in your Bible or listen. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he insists to you, you have, if, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Right? So if you have a conflict with somebody and you go and you talk it out, what happens? Usually you will grow deeper in your relationship with one another. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put them out of the church. Here, Paul is doing what Jesus said. He sees that there has been conflict between these two leaders in the church, that they haven't been able to work it out. So he says, you need a meteor, uh, a, not a meteor, a mediator, <laughs> a mediator. 
And a mediator is a thir- that third party that can come and sit down where two people can talk it out their differences, can say, well, you said this. Well, no, I meant this when I said that. And so Paul says that the true companion, we don't know who the true companion is, can sit down with these two leaders in the church and work out their differences. Why? So that there can be agreement, so that they can come together in an agreement. Paul understands what Jesus was talking about. Jesus outlines good conflict for us, how to walk through good conflict. That step one of conflict isn't go to 20 other people and get their opinion on why you think what that other person did was really, really, really wrong. Um, You know, and if I always say that if you want to get somebody else's opinion before you have conflict resolution with the person you're having conflict with, don't talk about what they did. Talk about what you did, right? So I'm going to talk about me. How did I feel? How did I react? I'm not going to tell you about the other person. I'm going to get myself calm so that I can go to them, not sin against them in gossip first. I can go to them and them alone at first and talk it out. And I've been able to talk to somebody, talk me off the ledge, talk me down from my anger, talk me down from all the the ways that I'm feeling. And then I can go to this person, work it out. Nine times out of 10, it is squashed right there. And you have a deeper relationship with that person. But if not, it's looking like what has not happened in this church. They have not been able to work it out. So Paul says, get a mediator together. When you get this person together with you, what will happen? Come together. He pleads with them. Come together in agreement. What has happened in today's world, I think, is that we are trained to run from conflict. We are trained that when conflict comes, this is not something I want in my life, so I'm going to run away. And what we're doing when we run away from conflict is we're running away from true relationships, we're running away from family, and we're running away um, from how God calls us into unity as a body of Christ. All right, And I think the ways that we run away or the, the world's wisdom has talked to us about this is we say things like, I want no negativity in my life. Right. If you you're bringing me negative vibes right now, if the moment you start bringing negativity in my life, I don't want anything of it. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to ghost you. We're not going to talk anymore. And and that and, you know, if you tell somebody like, yo, why don't you talk to that person? You know, they, they just have bad vibes. You know, they just constantly have bad vibes. And that is an acceptable reason. Right. It was just like, oh, that person was. I didn't want any negativity or this person wasn't a real one. And what I think what a lot of the culture is getting at is that as or how i see this more often played out is when we have a conflict with somebody when somebody doesn't do something that we want when they say something different than we expected them to say when maybe something happens where we get mad at them we use that as an opportunity to cut them off right and cutting people off has never been easier than in the time of social media because what can you do in today's day and age the ghosting is real you can block their number from your phone you can unfriend them from facebook you can unfollow them and block them on instagram you can block them on twitter and make sure that one you never see them again and that they can never access you again anymore and it's it is wild how often this happens that we we cut off people from our life before we ever actually sit down with them to resolve what has happened, the conflict between us. And this has seen as normal. 
right? I, I it, it it it's I always find it funny, like the amount of times people tell me that they have blocked this person or that person, and there are good reasons in your life to block somebody. Um, so I don't, you know, but the amount that I see this happen uh, to the amount that I think it's appropriate to happen is vastly outnumbers the amount that I think is appropriate because in today's day and age. It is okay to do that and fine to do that, to walk away from that and to walk away from people before you ever walk into and enter into healthy conflict with that person. In the church, we are called actually to lean into conflict as a natural part of a family construct to not, for, not to run from it, but to embrace it. Give me a second here. Sorry, the joys of Zoom had to mute somebody that <laughs> was unmuted. And so in scripture, we are called to embrace conflict as a natural part of a family construct, right? When uh, Jesus knows that we are going to have fights with one another, we are going to be uh, in sin with one another. And when that happens, when we have conflict with one another, he gives us the outline. This is what you're supposed to do. And we see Paul following those steps with these two women here in the church. And so when we get into conflict, I want us to remember what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Again, as he's writing Philippians, Paul is thinking about the practical application of what he is driving at, what he wants to get across at the church. So he said this before, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right? Pride and selfishness in us as individuals will be tools that the enemy uses to destroy church unity as a whole. When in ourselves, when we have pride, when we have selfishness, when we consider ourselves above others, when we consider our needs above other people's needs, these, these are tools that the enemy will use to cause division in the church. So I, we can't just think that this only affects me, how I'm acting. Your sinfulness, your... Uh, desire not to deal with certain things that God is calling you to deal with does not just affect you. When you are part of a body, when one part of that body is sick, it affects the entire body. Here are, are some ways that you can go into conflict that will have no resolution or very bad resolutions. And these are very common ways that I see people walk into conflict on a regular basis. And this is unhealthy ways of doing it, to do exactly opposite of what Paul calls us to do in Philippians 2. That when, if you go into it thinking that you are right. You know, my dad taught me when I was young, uh, and this always would annoy me, that there are two sides to every story. And so when I would come to him and tell him, Dad, do you know what this person did? They did this, they did this, they did this to me. Can you believe it? What are you going to do about it? Right? That's what I would end off with my dad. And he would say, well, I heard what you said. Now I want to hear what this person has to say. And I'd be like, what do you mean? I just told you exactly what happened. What do you need to hear from them? You don't need to hear from them. I told you all the facts. There are no other facts here. These are all straight facts, and these are the only facts that you need to know. Now, what are you going to do about it? And he would insist, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to their side, and then we'll be able to come to a resolution. Right? I, we, we are trained to go into fights that we are right. 
And how are we going to prove this person wrong and get them to admit that I am right and that they are wrong? This is not a way that you should enter into conflict. Another uh, thing that I see people do often is they go into, uh, they go in thinking what happened to them was more important uh, than what happened to the other person, right? So the way that you made me feel is more important than the way that I made you feel. And so as long as I can make you uh, understand the way that you made me feel, which means I'm probably going to make you feel uh, down, I'm going to make you feel dirty, I'm going to make you feel wrong, I'm going to make you feel beneath yourself, I'm going to be condescending toward you because I, my goal here is to make you feel the extent by which you hurt me. And so when we do that, we go in with the goal to hurt the other person. This is a way to enter in into bad conflict resolution. When you realize that you go into a conflict with somebody not to win, right? We are trained to go into conflict to win, not to win, but to come out unified, then it changes our perspective when we go in and how we're going to deal with that conflict. Another thing that I see people do is they go in ready to fight, rather than listen. When we go into conflict and we are ready to throw down before we're ready to listen to what that other person has to say, then guess what? This is what happens. They're talking and all I hear is blah, 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 blah. I can't wait till I could tell you what you did. I can't wait till I could tell you why you're wrong. Blah, 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 blah. I can't wait till I could scream at you. Blah, blah, blah. They're done. Cue my response to tell them all the reasons why they're wrong. But I did not just hear anything that they said, right? And, and we go into so many conflicts like this, and that's why we don't have resolution is because we go in ready to fight, not ready to listen. And when we're ready to fight, we're not listening to what the other person said. We are only thinking about the next thing that I am going to say. And so I've learned that over the years that 90% of conflict is misunderstanding. And when we go in with all these understandings of I'm going to fight, that I'm going to make you feel how I feel, that I am right, then we are never going to find the misunderstanding that caused the conflict between you and me. I, I, I used to have this thing that when someone got me angry, I would kind of write down all the things I wanted to say to them um, and all, the, all the, the things that were going to happen because of what they did, right? The, these were going to be the outcomes. You know, the, uh, I don't know, there's, if, if somebody's got you mad and you were fuming and in that moment you thought about all the bad things that you wanted to do and say to them, just think of that. This is what I used to do. And I used to go into a meeting with these outcomes already written down and this is what I'm going to do. And then what would happen, I, was, I would get in front of the person, I would sit down and I would listen to them talk and several things would help uh, because it would totally change my perspective. And I realized after a time what I was doing was I was writing the outcomes of conflict before I listened to the other person. And that's why I was going into conflict unhealthily. But when I would sit down in front of people, because I would always ask, like, why did I not? I, I would kind of get frustrated myself. Why did I not? Uh, stick to the things that I said I was going to do at the end of the conflict. And it was for simple reasons, because when I would sit down with somebody, I'd remember that they are human, just like me, right? Uh, this simple rule that I tell to my kids often, do unto others what you would want done unto you. This thing that Jesus tells us to do. Well, if I made a mistake as a human being, I would want somebody to listen uh, and hear me out of why I made that mistake before they decreed a judgment over my life or over my situation. And so I'd realize and I remember that this person is human just like me.
that they have feelings that are valid, just like I have feelings that are valid. When you go into conflict, you have valid feelings, right? Someone may have hurt you, they may have made you angry, they may have done something that just you know caused a rupture in your heart. These are valid feelings, but there are also valid feelings that other people have, and your feelings aren't the only feelings that are valid. And the other thing that always helped me is that when you listen to somebody, this is the wisdom that I think my dad was trying to get across, is that I had done something that caused the conflict, not just this person, right? So uh, meaning I would sit down and realize, man, I said something, there was a misunderstanding, a miscommunication that caused a reaction, that caused this outcome, and I was part of that. Uh, as the saying goes, it takes two to tangle. Like I, when there is conflict, conflict usually isn't within with just myself. It's with a person, which means there are two people having the conflict, and there are two people that have something that they can apologize for. And so, because go, uh, because I was able to kind of go in and start realizing these things in the future, something happened that at the end of our conflicts, I realized that there was a constant apology, a sincere apology of, you know what? I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. And then the other person saying they're sorry for the things that they have done wrong. And we can come together in mutual agreement that I forgive you for that and they have forgiven me for that. And so now we can deep build a deeper relationship, deeper bond, and dive deeper into community and family with one another like we're called to do as a church. So be prepared, I would say. It is not an easy road, but it is one that we have to take to finding true community, which is entering into the chaos of conflict and relationship building. Calling out division in the church, the reason why Paul does this, and it's so important, because we must walk out our Christianity together. The only way that Paul says over and over in Philippians, that we can stand firm in God is together. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, I may hear of you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And if you remember last week, when we ended with chapter 4, verse 1, I'm going to read it again. He says, and this is, is the, the verse that is precluding the verses that we just read for these two leaders. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He says, stand firm and now come together in agreement. This is how we stand firm together. You cannot do the walk of God alone. You must do it with other brothers and sisters. And the only way we can stand firm with God is with unity of the believers, especially in adversity, which is what Paul talks about in Philippians 1. That's the crux of the passage, that there is deep adversity. And now he's calling them to go through this adversity unified together because when you are unified, that will tell your enemy and show them their destruction, he says in Philippians chapter 1. This is not an individual call to stand firm in the Lord. This is a corporate call for a community to stand firm together. Alone we will fall. Together we are going to stand. We are able to stand firm in the Lord. How you weave into the community of the church is important. I, I, I see this misunderstanding constantly, that people think that coming to a service is being part of the church. 
It's not. Coming to service is something that you do when you are part of a church, but it does not make you part of the church. If you want a chance to stand firm in your faith, remember you must stand in unity with the body of Christ. You must enter into deep relationship and community. One thing that I've seen during COVID is this very real feeling of being tired of Zoom and being tired of getting on calls. And so we, we sense this feeling of being maxed out and not wanting to have human interaction. And what I've seen happen is I've seen a lot of people kind of step back and say, you know what, um, I, I, I don't want to engage with people. And, and this is a very valid feeling, right? When we are, most jobs, if you are still working right now, want more production, more work out of you. There's more meetings than ever before because they're saying, well, no travel time. So let's meet more and more and more. And there's this feeling of overproductivity. But what has been the flip side of that is I've, I've started to see, and what concerns me is people use that as an excuse to disengage from the church, disengage from community. And what happens when you do that, what does scripture say about the enemy? That he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you look at how lions attack when they go to take the prey, they don't attack the herd. What they do is sometimes what they'll do is they'll scare the herd so that they run and they see who the straggler is that is either running too slow or running in a different direction and that then they will encircle that straggler and come and take out that prey. And so what we want to do now more than ever is stand firm with the body. Don't disengage, don't walk away because what will happen is the enemy will see us alone and he will take it as opportunity to take us out, to devour us. He will see us alone and say, you know what? This is my chance. But instead, we need to make sure that we understand what the priorities of our life are, to engage, to stand firm together as one people, one mind and one accord, walking deeply in community that even when there's conflict, we're working those things out and walking them out together. If the lion never finds that straggler, he will never be able to do what he wants to do, which is devour. I love in Romans when it says um, that, that verse, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And I'm singing it because that's like an old song from my childhood that we used to sing in church and all the old school Christians can sing that with me. Uh, that what will happen when we stand firm together, when we are in unity, when we work together, when we stand as one, as one body and one accord and one mind with the same love, with the same mission, with the same purpose, what will happen? The enemy will find himself underneath our feet. He will not be able to take us out. We must remember that we cannot walk this walk alone. Some of us have been participating, but we haven't been engaging. Don't allow the enemy to see you as some standalone target. We must stand firm together as a church in unity. Don't let disagreement, pride, conflict, or selfishness stand in the way of you being part of the body of Christ. It will not only hinder your walk with God, but it will hinder the reason why we all live, the spread of the gospel. Jesus said it loud and clear. If we are not united, then when people look at us, 
they will not see him for who he truly is, the Son of God. And so we are called to stand united because if we don't, the very purpose of the church, the very mission of the gospel is at stake. That people will not receive Jesus for who he is. And we will not walk in what we are called to walk in, unity and family and deep community to stand firm together so that when the wiles of the enemy come, when the lion seeks whom he may devour, he will find us together strong with nobody straggling on their own. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you do not call us to do this alone. And so often we find ourselves thinking that we are alone in our home and we think, God, we need your help, but you have given us a body, a church to help us. Lord, and so I pray that the temptations to only participate but not engage, Lord, that we would be able to put those temptations aside, that we would not allow the enemy to use one of his greatest tools, division in the church, God, we will not allow him to separate us, but Father, that even during this time that we would stand together as one united people, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom, and same mission and same attitude, that Lord, as we work out the kinks of what it means to be a family, of what it means, God, to, to be in deep, true community, of what it means to enter into chaos and emerge family after that. God, that you would be with us and the ways that the world has taught us, ungodly ways to deal with conflict, to keep us hopping from one place to the other instead of truly engaging in what you call us to do, which is deep family. God, that we would run to you knowing, Lord, that you have given us a place and a people that we can fulfill your mission here on earth together, not as a standalone unit, but as a single corporate unit, that we would stand firm in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.